0: Peace, peace yet again. This is Dr. Charity Clay welcoming you back for episode two of the Catalyst Cast in uh, my series on uh, how white supremacy benefits from black protests. Uh, In this episode, I'll focus on how white supremacy benefits from the protest activities themselves. Now, before we get into the details, I want to recap the major points from the last episode for those of you who didn't get to check it. I do suggest when you get time, you do check it out, though. Uh, I try to keep them under 25 minutes, which means I miss out on some of the uh, research that I've done to support my claims. But hopefully we'll dig deeper into those things in future dialogue. I'm looking forward to all the responses from that episode. So here's the recap of episode one and the ways that white supremacy benefit from media coverage of black protests. The first way is it allows corporations that support our oppression to invest in media and benefit from the increased coverage of black death through sponsorship. The second way is the increased media, social media coverage exploits black creatives allowing white supremacist industries to profit from black genius. Third way is that the media narratives and images lull us into a false sense of progress that makes us complacent and thus disconnected from the work beyond protesting that's necessary for social change. And four, Consistently seeing black death, black life ended at the hands of police on video inflicts psychological trauma and physical pain that has individual and collective impacts for black communities. Now, I'm not saying don't protest, or maybe I am, but I'm not dismissing the feeling of liberation that black people get from marching, even if it is revolutionary. I mean, for many of us who've been sheltering in place since March, this release is needed on so many levels. And what better way to get outside than supporting Blackness? I get it. Folks want to make it a hot summer? I'm with it. I'm just saying we need to understand how the system of white supremacy uses Black protests for its own benefit. Because Black release and Black liberation are two different things. Now remember, my goal with these podcasts isn't to say the same thing that everyone else is saying. It's to add a missing perspective on a very complicated issue. So as always, comments, questions, critiques, debate, all that dialogue is welcome. Now, let's get into episode two. Like I said before, we only get one chance to use a tactic before the system absorbs it and uses it for its own benefit. And with street protests, that one chance was back in the 60s. Now since then, the system of white supremacy has invested heavily in making it look like reactionary street protests are successful. So we ignore and neglect the grueling, consistent, dedicated work over time that it takes to make social change. We can look at Minneapolis as an example. Debate me if you want, and I will admit that the police murder of George Floyd uh, was a breaking point that contributed to the Minneapolis Public School, the University of Minnesota Twin Cities campus, and the Minneapolis Parks and Rec Board to end its contract with the police. But it won't be those street protests that actually make any of it happen. It takes a while for such large institutions to launch alternative models for public safety, to study existing models, put an alternative plan together, create a funding proposal and a timeline for implementation. That means new training, new positions, new structures. So defunding the police is not an easy task. Also, we have to acknowledge that this idea of defunding the police is only a concern in communities under police occupation. See, suburban white communities, they don't have cops in their schools and they don't have over-policing in their streets. So for them, they already have community models and they don't overfund the police. Now Minneapolis is actually mentioned using Denver, Colorado, Austin, Texas, and Eugene, Oregon as models for their proposed changes. What do these cities have in common? (laughs) Well, they're overwhelmingly white. So we'll see how this unfolds in Minneapolis especially since there's already been pushback from students at Henry and North High Schools located in the black communities because their resource officers actually serve as mentors to the students in that community. They are volunteer sports coaches and advisors for much needed underfunded extracurricular activities. And according to the students, they actually provide a sense of safety. So again, it's very complicated. Now, either the groundwork to make this experiment work has already been laid or, The two months given to the superintendent to figure it out before the next school year starts is going to prove not nearly enough time and this will be yet another symbolic gesture that results in no material change. Now if the experiment is successful it'll be due to the city of Minneapolis electing local officials who are committed to serving the people and well equipped to develop and implement policy changes, which is really the lesson we should take away because we continue to push voting, but we neglect the importance of grooming and training candidates from our communities so we have people representing us on those ballots. But instead of reconsidering how we engage local political systems, we're celebrating street protests and riots like they're the sole reason for the decisions made in Minneapolis to defund police, when those activities are actually a major line item in most city police budgets. Which brings me to one of the ways that white supremacy benefits from black protest activities. Overtime pay for police officers at protests. Now the average salary for a Minneapolis police officer is about 70k, which is more than most assistant professors like myself make. Putting that into context, I had to get a bachelor's, master's, and a PhD, while cops only attend the academy for 16 weeks of training. Now, when you factor in overtime, which doesn't exist in my profession, cops actually make more than professors. During the Ferguson protests of 2014, officers were bragging on social media about how much money they were making and actually encouraging protesters to continue so they could buy nice things, go on trips, and quote unquote have a good Christmas, all while being allowed and even encouraged to use force on nonviolent protesters. But now we're seeing more videos of police officers assaulting protesters, running them over, shooting them, all while draining the city budget. So in this way, these reactionary street protests actually undermine efforts to defund the police because city budgets have to provide funds to cover these expenses. And they often do so by cutting other public services, like education, sanitation, public health, and other things that disproportionately impact the quality of Black lives in these neighborhoods. So the same school board that has moved to end its contract with the police may see its own budget cut and be forced to get rid of counselors, special needs employees, professional development opportunities for teachers, extracurricular activities, and other important things. I remember a report coming out last year calculating that the Oakland Police Department paid out nearly $30 million in overtime to officers each of the last three years. Now, of course, all overtime isn't due to protests, but it's one of the easiest and most preferred ways for officers to get extra pay and abuse people's rights. And they do just that. So not only does white supremacy benefit when officers get paid from our protest activities, but the system also benefits when we suffer police violence experienced at these protests. Black people who are less likely to have adequate health care coverage or receive adequate health care services are most likely to be assaulted during these protests. And the police departments in the city are not covering their medical bills. (laughs) And to cover it all up, we get a president who labels Black protesters as criminals, be it Trump in 2020 or Obama in 2015 when he addressed the uprisings in Baltimore, and we get coverage that highlights cops making gestures in solidarity with protesters that lead to that not-all-cops narrative. Right now, there's actually a viral video of a black woman police officer chastising a white officer for putting his hands on a black woman at a protest, showing again that there are good cops. But I'm telling you now, I pray for the safety and well-being of that black woman officer because the history of retaliation for officers who do not fully support each other in the line of duty, much less those who stand up for protesters against their fellow officers, means that she might have sealed her own fate with that action. But again, that speaks to the media coverage, the images and the narrative, because she's being praised on social media and supported publicly by the police chief. But let's be mindful of what happens to Fort Lauderdale officer Crystal Smith in the coming years. But regardless, it's not about individual police officers. It's about understanding policing as being systemic and connected to other structures and mechanisms that allow police to terrorize black communities. But instead of acknowledging that, we see cops kneeling at protests and suddenly they're no longer operatives of a repressive state and we even view them as potential allies. (laughs) Which brings me to the second way that white supremacy benefits from protest activities. And that's by giving us a false sense of allyship, especially with these protests. Uh, In many cases, I've seen more white faces and heard commentary about there being more white faces in the crowd than blacks, which for me arises immediate suspicion. And I'll talk about how that's led to some serious problems, but here I'm going to focus on our fascination with white allies. As I mentioned in the last episode, I'm a racial realist, which means I understand interest convergence theory, which says that whites will only join in supporting black causes and issues to the extent that they benefit. But we're so quick to praise white people for speaking up or standing with us. But most of it is performative solidarity to deal with their guilt. It's like suddenly the protests are these cookouts that white people get invited and welcomed to with open arms. But forgive me, I'm not praising white people for standing in front of black protesters, because they know their lives are not in danger. They also have supportive resources from the legal system if they're arrested, and when it's all said and done, they can leave the protests and go back to their undisturbed, unoccupied communities where they avoid difficult conversations and fold themselves back into whiteness unharmed. But many of us just love to see them with their signs, and we believe that they have our backs, which again breeds a false sense of security, so then we're surprised when these same whites we thought were on our side continue to reap the benefits from our oppression in ways they can't give up even if they wanted to. And honestly, I can't think of one benefit to Black people of having white people participating in street protests but some of us don't really want liberation. We wanna be accepted, embraced, and loved, and equally valued by white people, even to our demise. When I meet white people claiming to be allies, I generally ask them who their ally or anti-racist heroes and heroines are. What are their ideologies on racial separation and the idea that white people may have to die or will have to die for black people to get their liberation? See, as black people, our concern is to resist, survive, and eventually escape from white supremacy, but we can't fix it. If it's to be fixed, that's white people's work. So I asked them, those allies, in what ways they daily disrupt white structures and exclusive white spaces where policy decisions are made and resources are distributed in ways that oppress black people, especially those that insist on being present in black spaces and visible at black protests. Let's look at New Orleans, for example. Down here, we had a big issue recently with our hoppers. That's what we call the sanitation workers, Um, mostly black men, because they weren't being given hazard pay or masks while providing an essential service during the pandemic lockdown. The workers only make $10.25 an hour, which is definitely not a living wage or respectable for the work they do. So they asked for $15 an hour and PPE under the circumstances and were denied. So they went on strike only to be replaced by prison workers who were paid $1.33 an hour. Now, I didn't see nearly as many white people in solidarity for this issue of black livelihood as the reported thousands that showed up in Duncan Plaza in the central business district and at Jackson square in the French quarter in quote unquote solidarity with Minneapolis. In New Orleans, a city that's almost 70% black. I had to squint when I saw news coverage of protests to find black people in the crowd. This is one of the last black cities in the country and battles are waged here daily against systemic oppression from every social structure. So the idea that white allies get to pick and choose the events worth showing up for is very telling about their allyship, especially when black residents have been vocal about white people they know to be racist showing up at protests. It's to the point where I protested in 2020 is going to be the new I voted for Obama in 2008 for whites. But at least the ones in this city were peaceful. Because when I saw a lot of the violence erupt, I got my answer as to why a lot of white people were at the protest. And this leads me to the third way that white supremacy benefits from black reactionary street protest activities. (laughs) It allows anarchists, Undercover provocateurs and hate groups a cover for causing destruction and mayhem in Black communities. You know, one of my people in Minneapolis sent me a video. That has since been removed, but it was a video of two white guys in masks and all Black, one with a chainsaw and one with a blowtorch, that were vandalizing buildings and setting fires in Minneapolis. Now, of course, some Black people joined in afterwards. And there are emotion stirring photos of young Black people in masks with fists raised in front of destroyed or burning buildings. I can forgive them for getting caught up in the moment, but for those white men to attend a protest with those tools of destruction means that they had the intent when they showed up and it was never about George Floyd for them. See, the majority of property destruction in black communities in Minneapolis and Chicago and other cities was not done in the name of protest or the language of the unheard that MLK referred to riots as being. This was calculated devastation of black communities by white supremacists. People mentioned that it was happening in Ferguson, in Oakland, in Baltimore, but this time there's way more footage of officers, uniformed and undercover, bashing out windows, of anarchists vandalizing buildings and spray painting BLM and other messages to associate the destruction with black people, and agent provocateurs planting bricks for people to throw and paying people to cause destruction. This ties back into the media coverage because, see, we get so caught up that we're taking credit in calling it black power, when people are hashtagging the destruction of our own communities. Right now, there's a video circulating that people think is a Minneapolis police precinct engulfed in flames, but that building is, well, was a low income housing development, not affordable housing, but low income housing. And it was supposed to have about a hundred units and people are celebrating it being burnt down in the name of revolution. Community centers, grocery stores, small businesses, pharmacies and outlets needed in the pandemic more than ever have been destroyed in neighborhoods where black people already have limited access. And instead of recognizing the damage and protecting our communities, unfortunately, many of us joined in with these so-called allies or at least praised them for their efforts and their willingness to get their hands dirty with misguided slogans like people over property and burn it down. Phrases that look good on t-shirts and signs, but erase the complicated reality that property destruction in under-resourced Black communities, especially during a pandemic, is devastating. Now, many of the major corporations have been losing revenue, and we're kind of hoping to get broken into so they can file insurance claims instead of reporting a loss for quarter two, which conveniently ends at the end of this month. Additionally, it's major corporations that receive the lion's share of any bailout leaving small businesses, which most black businesses are, to struggle on their own to stay afloat. I'll go more in depth in this on the next episode about the aftermath, but I've spoken to five black business owners that doubted that they would be able to recover with all their merchandise gone. Which brings me to the fourth way that white supremacy benefits from the protest activities. It's the capitalist sentiment that underlies looting aligns us with the capitalist system we're claiming to protest against. See, the same way we create narratives about property destruction being a sign of revolution, we've done the same thing with looting. Actually using white's history of looting to justify our own, like somehow imitating our oppressors, is our way to liberation. So I asked, do we want to abolish capitalism or do we just want more stuff? Because folks in Atlanta didn't go to the High Museum and liberate African artifacts. They went to the Dior store so they could be fly or flip whatever they were able to grab for profit. So, while we think we're being revolutionary, we're feeding right into capitalism. And of course, we can frame it as some lumpen proletariat move, but it's still based on the value that status symbols have within capitalism and not based on abolishing that system and redistributing wealth. Now there were white people looting too, yes, but I already said that white people's actions in support of oppression shouldn't be used to justify our own in claims of resistance to that same oppression. And honestly, we need to focus less on what white people are doing anyway. But it pains me to see a group of 10 black men click up to go loot a clothing store, but there weren't 10 black men to click up to take on four police officers to save George Floyd's life. What's that black star line? Not strong, only aggressive because the power ain't directive? That's pretty accurate. But again, it's not like people were looting stores that had a history of treating black people unfairly, then redistributing needed resources to the community, people were selling stuff on Facebook Marketplace for profit and getting themselves caught, which leads me to the fifth way that white supremacy benefits from protest activities, the arrests and subsequent charges. You know, protesting is supposed to be protected by the First Amendment of the Constitution as free speech, but when has the Constitution really ever been extended to Black people? But what people don't understand is that the Tenth Amendment allow states to create laws to govern its people and resources as it sees fit. So every time there are large scale protests, states pass laws increasingly criminalizing protesting. And let's not forget the federal categorization of the black identity extremists that they desperately need to bring cases to legitimize. I know people who've gotten felony charges for their nonviolent protests in Oakland, Ferguson, and New York after protesting police killings. I'll talk about that more when I get to the aftermath. But right now, I want to focus on how the arrest of protesters drains our community of resources. We have to find bail money so people don't sit in jail awaiting trials and hearings that will take longer now that many cities are shutting down courts and other government buildings supposedly because of the protests and previously because of the pandemic. So now jail populations will increase, generating revenue for white supremacist for profit prison industry. Or the other option is for organizations and individuals to come up with bail money. But where does that money go? (laughs) To predatory bail bondsmen who get and stay wealthy because of the criminalization of black people. And even more than the bondsmen, the insurance companies that underwrite the bonds rake in millions. Remember they're bonds. So they're essentially loans and they generate $15 billion a year. And there are only about 10 insurers that split up their share. And with that money, they donate heavily to political efforts to thwart any reforms to eliminate cash bail and support legislation to increase amounts of risk of defaulting on cash bail and politicians who are, quote unquote, tough on crime. Again, while we think we're being revolutionary, we're giving up people and resources to entities that invest in and profit from our oppression. Now, in the next episode, I'll go into details about how white supremacy benefits from the aftermath. But let me wrap this up and recap the ways that Black protest activities benefit white supremacy. I just finished talking about how arrests put people into the for-profit prison system, allow cash bond systems to drain community resources, and provide revenue to white supremacist institutions that invest in our oppression. That links directly to the first way I mentioned, where the same police officers being protested against rake in overtime pay to abuse protesters, which undermines efforts to defund police and causes physical and psychological harm to community members. The third way is the false sense of allyship that is developed and celebrated, and in no way furthers the cause of Black liberation, but rather prevents us from recognizing the motive of some whites present at these protests, which is the fourth way. The cover provided for white hate groups, ops, and anarchists to strategically devastate Black communities economically and emotionally, often with our help, unfortunately. Which leads to the fifth and final way that I discussed. The capitalist looting that we rationalize as revolutionary when we're really imitating our oppressors and supporting the system of capitalism. Now, hopefully, after listening to this, you can see evidence of what I'm saying. I think Black people need outlets for our emotions, and I know protests provide that on a large scale, but I'll say it again. I strongly believe in the motto of closing ranks and fortify. I believe that we need to keep those spaces protected within our communities, not broadcast to our enemies so they can study us. So reach out to me with comments, feedback, critiques, whatever. In the next episode, I'll focus on how white supremacy benefits from the aftermath of Black protests. Until then, peace after revolution. And remember, charity is love, love is the catalyst, and this is the Catalyst Cast.